had a dream about this place. to ghost stories for the end of the world. So, we have previously discussed the idea of hidden engines in global politics and finance and how guns and oil and drugs very often move along the same routes as they travel around the world, you know. Now, during the final few episodes of The Octopus, you know, once we started to discuss Jeffrey Epstein and Far West and so on, this concept of meta groups and what have you. Um, I became increasingly fixated on fossil fuels and resource extraction and, you know, most of all the spooks and the middlemen that haunt all of these different industries. And tonight and in the next episode, we're going to go deep on, or deeper even, on some of these topics. And we're going to talk about, you know, oil companies, money laundering, middlemen, managed violence, and the business of private intelligence. And at all times, you know, as ever, we're going to be asking ourselves where the money goes and where all of this could be heading. Now, first, I want to tell you about a house. It's a house in Britain, and it's not the only house of its kind here. We have tens of thousands of houses and other buildings like this. Uh, Go to Google Maps and search for 80 Sydney Street which is in Folkestone. Uh, Try the postcode or zip code if you're an American. Try that. The postcode is CT196HQ. That's Charlie Tango 196 Hotel Quebec. And then go to Street View and you should be looking at a narrow three-story white terraced house. This is a totally unremarkable building, really. But there's something very weird about this house, which is that while both the registered owners have been dead for the last 30 years, they are still named on the property deeds. And what's also very weird is that upwards of 4,300 companies from around the world have listed 80 Sydney Street as their business address. And it gets even funkier when you look at the documents that were released as part of the Panama Papers expose, and you start to come through the names of these companies and their owners, one company in particular that was registered at 80 Sydney Street is a perfect little bundle of weirdness for us to consider. And this is Aria Petroleum. Uh, That's A-R-I-A. Now, Aria Petroleum is this tiny little petroleum extraction firm that most people have never heard of, and good for them, to be honest. And as of the recording of this episode, it's now registered at, I believe, 21A 
Bar Street in uh, Staffordshire. And appropriately enough, it's due to go into liquidation on Halloween of this year. Now, the firm appears to have gone through cycles of existing and not existing and trying to untangle that particular strand of weirdness is not worth the effort. Just think of it as of a pace with other, you know, inscrutable, mysterious subsurface movements in the world of business and finance that we've covered before on this show. These moves will have served somebody's purpose at the time. Another case is 29 Harley Street, which, you know, just like 80 Sydney Street, is the registered address of thousands of businesses that are owned by complex chains of shelf companies and people who possibly only exist on paper to facilitate fraud and tax evasion or to disguise the real owners or some combination of all this and more. Uh, oh, and thanks to Hate Nostalgia on Twitter, or X, as it's now called for some reason, for reminding me about Harley Street. So Aria UK was controlled by Aria Cyprus, and Cyprus is where most of the people who sat on the board are also domiciled, at least on paper. And Aria Cyprus ran the firm in partnership with a company called Gunvar Group Limited. Gunvar is a big deal. But first... These houses, these empty houses that are scattered around the UK, illustrate how capital and the labyrinthian financial networks that it creates warp and malform, not just, you know, like the world economy, but time and space itself. So in the case of 80 Sydney Street, we could, you know, if we cared to, we could visit that house and touch the walls and maybe kick in the door and walk around inside. And our eyes would tell us that, not only is it empty, but we'd be hard-pressed to fit a family of more than four or five in there. And yet, anonymous functionaries, you know, financial shamans and coked-out lawyers, they have turned this house into something impossible, which is an empty place where people become the living dead with the correct paperwork. And 4,300 legally registered companies keep head offices there that don't exist. Now, as a sidebar... <clears throat> The, uh, the hallucinogenic influence of dark money on day-to-day -day life in Britain is something that I find increasingly fascinating. Um, and if you and I were to meet in London right now, I'd probably show you Oxford Street by way of illustration of this point. Because for years now, these, these American-style candy shops have been appearing all over the place. Um, you rarely, really see any customers inside them apart from you know, the odd tourist who just gets lost on the way to somewhere more interesting. Uh, it's usually just the staff. Now, what these businesses do is they open up and then they avoid paying business rates for as long as they can while they wash as much money from drugs and guns and human trafficking as possible. And then they either stonewall and bullshit long enough to, you know, wash a little more dirty money or they close down and they disappear. And they're not just cleaning dirty money either. They're also selling stolen goods and fake merchandise out the back door, or they're establishing lines of credit to buy stuff that they can shift at discounted rates without paying the creditors back. And this is similar to the old long-firm scam. Now, as Rachel Blake of Labour has said, quote, as things stand, these candy stars are able to register with our corporate register company's house without declaring who the true owners are. Instead, phony company directors are listed with company's house when the shell company is first created. 
If the beneficial owners are ever tracked down, the company has usually long since been dissolved and profits extracted without trace. This makes it almost impossible to stop the flow of dirty money and means law enforcement is always one step behind. Oxford Street. Oxford Street is what it looks like when this dark money trip gets out of control. So anyway, let's consider this firm, Gunvar. Now, Gunvar is a commodity trading firm with offices registered in Stamford, Houston, and, you know, inevitably London, Dubai, Geneva, and Singapore. These places are at least brick and steel structures with real people working in them, as far as I can ascertain anyway. Gunvar was founded by uh, Gennady Timchenko, who is a Russian, and Tubjan Tunkvist, who is a Swede. He's one of the richest people in Sweden, in fact. Now, these two are very fun guys, and Gunvar has been implicated in a number of corruption scandals. In 2017, the company was exposed for its role in an oil smuggling scheme in Belarus, and it was fined $100 million for bribing officials in the Republic of Congo and the Ivory Coast for oil leases, you know. So Gennady Timchenko, through uh, his company Volga Group, owns the seventh largest gas production company in the world, which is Novatech. And in 2014, he sold a share of Gunvar to uh, Tubian the day before that he was sanctioned by the US government. So obviously someone in the States tipped him off that the sanctions were coming down. Now, Timchenko also invested in uh, a private military contractor called Redoubt, you know, a, a Merck company. And it provides security for other Russian firms, Russian diplomats and the like. And it's deployed or it was deployed in a very limited capacity in places like Syria and the Balkans before Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Thereafter, um, redoubt personnel were deployed to Ukraine and were just swallowed up in the meat grinder. They lost about 90% of their personnel. And at the same time, uh, Timchenko and his uh, fellow investors, they were kind of locked in a war for recruits and investment with Wagner. Um, and it seemed for a time like Redoubt was pretty much finished. But then obviously the other month, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin was uh, clipped. And the Russian Ministry of Defense has now effectively begun rebuilding Redoubt as a kind of bulwark against uh, discontented former employees of Wagner. And it's also ended up slowly absorbing other Wagner personnel and pivoting towards Africa. So Timchenko is kind of a mad guy because of his close relationship with uh, Putin. And it's to the extent that uh, Putin trusted Timchenko to invest his money for him in various commercial ventures in and out of Russia or through Gunvar and Volga and other companies. But there's another interesting link here. And it's between Gunvar's um, Aria Petroleum UK and sweatless party boy Prince Andrew. Because you see, long before his dead mother paid £12 million to silence a trafficking victim that Andrew had never met, Andrew was given a busy work job by the UK government. And he held this position for fucking years. He was the special representative for trade and international development. And in 2010, a firm by the name of, you know, funnily enough, Aria Petroleum reached out to him and asked if he could get them a $200 million line of credit with a bank in the US. This is extremely weird for several 
reasons. One, only two companies called Aria Petroleum have existed in the States, and they were relatively tiny provincial firms linked to local gas stations and grocery stores, you know. Um, two, there's no reason why these companies would have known or would have needed Prince Andrew, who, let's not forget, was a British trade and international development envoy. No reason why they'd need him to connect them with an American bank. Three, and this is weirdest of all, ARIA UK did not officially exist in 2010 and it wouldn't be registered in the UK until 2012. So here I think it's possible that the eventual founders of ARIA UK were using Andrew to explore to explore potential financing options for the future. You know, how likely would we be to get a major loan from a US bank if we had Prince Andrew in our corner? You know, that type of thing. And four, the British government has consistently refused to either confirm or deny if Andrew was um, officially sanctioned to make this request for Aria. And I mean, you know, what the fuck? So Andrew flew to New York and he asked an associate of his if he could make some phone calls. Now this associate emailed his pal Jess Staley with the request because Andrew's associate was, of course, Jeffrey Epstein. And Staley was still a JP Morgan executive at the time. This is the guy who had the extremely close and creepy friendship with Epstein that saw them firing uh, thousands of emails at each other in obviously coded language uh, like this. So says Staley to Epstein, that was fun. Say hi to Snow White Epstein. What character would you like next? Mr. Staley, Beauty and the Beast. Epstein, well, one side is available. And anyway, Andrew made this request during the same trip to New York City that he now says he'd taken to break up with Jeff after his conviction for child sex offenses. And then after this, you know, in early 2012, Aria Petroleum UK was established and immediately won a contract to supply petrol to certain US forces in Afghanistan. This cannot be just a matter of chance. This, please, cannot be that. And so here we've arrived at our middleman and fixer for this evening, which is Prince Andrew. Now, I'm not overly interested in getting into all the Epstein stuff, although it is worth noting that, as we'll see later in this episode, Andrew has often acted with the full sanction and backing of the UK government and, you know, like the Ministry of Defence and uh, departments like that. Jeffrey Epstein was once given permission to land his private jet at RAF bases when he came to visit Andrew in Britain. So the question that's worth pondering is, was this sanctioned by the UK government as well? given Epstein's connections to Glenn Maxwell and obviously everything that that entails. It would be um, a, a, a considerable stretch to say that he was a very, very close friend, but he had the most extraordinary um, ability to bring um, uh, extraordinary people together. Uh, and that's the bit that I remember, is going to the dinner parties where you would meet academics, politicians, people from the United Nations. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a cosmopolitan group of what I would describe as, as US um, eminence. Did you trust him? 
Uh, yes, I think I probably did. But uh, again, um, I mean, I don't go into um, a friendship looking for the wrong thing, if you understand what I mean. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an engaging person. I want to be able to engage. I want to find out. I want to learn. Um, uh, and so uh, you have to remember that I was transitioning out of the Navy at the time. Um, and in the transition, uh, I wanted to, to find out more about what was going on. Because in the Navy, um, uh, it's a pretty isolated business because you're out at sea the whole time. The opportunities that I had to go to Wall Street and other places to learn uh, whilst I was there were, were absolutely vital. He was your guest as well. In 2000, Epstein was a guest at Windsor Castle and at Sandringham. He was brought right into the heart yes, of the but, royal family at your but, invitation. But uh, certainly at my invitation, not at the royal family's invitation, but remember that it was his girlfriend that was the key element in this. He was the, as it were, plus one to some extent in, 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 that, in that aspect. Am I right in thinking you threw a, a birthday party um, for Epstein's girlfriend, Galen Maxwell, at Sandringham? No, it was a shooting weekend. A shooting weekend. Just a straightforward, straightforward shooting weekend. But during these times that he was a guest at Windsor Castle at Sandringham, uh, the shooting weekend, yep, yeah. we now know that he was and had been procuring young girls for sex trafficking. We now know that. At the time, there was no indication to me or anybody else that that was what he was doing. He was released in July, within months, by December of 2010. You went to stay with him at his New York mansion why? Why were you staying with a convicted sex offender? Right. I have always, uh, ever since this has happened, and since this has become, um, as it were, public knowledge that I was there, I've questioned myself as to why did I go, uh, what was I doing, and was it the right thing to do? Now, I went there with the sole purpose of saying to him that because he had been convicted, it was inappropriate for us to be seen together. And I had a number of people counsel me in both directions, either to go and see him or not to go and see him. And I took the judgment call that because this was um, serious um, and uh, I felt that doing it over the telephone was the chicken's way of doing it. I had to go and see him and talk to him. Um, and I went to see him uh, and I was doing a number of other things in New York at the time um, and we had an opportunity to go for a walk in the park and that was the conversation um, coincidentally that was photographed which was when I said to him I said look because of what has happened I don't think it is appropriate that we should remain in contact and by mutual agreement during that walk in the park. We decided that we would part company and I left, I think it was the next day. And to this day, I never had any contact with him from that day forward. What did he say when you told him that you were breaking up the friendship? 
He was what I would describe as understanding. Um, he didn't go into any great depth um, in the conversation about what I was doing and what he was doing, um, except to say that 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 uh, uh, he'd accepted a whatever it was a plea bargain. He'd served his time, um, and uh, he was carrying on with his life. You see what I mean? And I said yes, but I'm afraid to say that 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 that, that that's as maybe. Um, but with all the attendant scrutiny on me, then I don't think it is a wise thing to do. Who advised you then that it was a good idea to go and break up the friendship? Did that come from the palace? Was no, Her Majesty no, 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 the no, Queen no, involved? No, 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 no. That came from. So there were a number of people who, who. So, so some people from um, my staff, some people from um, friends and family. I was talking to, and I took the decision that it was. I had to show leadership and I had to go and see him and I had to tell him that's it. That was December of 2010. Yep. He threw a party to he... celebrate his release and you were invited as no, the guest go. of honour. Oh, in 2010? That there wasn't, certainly wasn't a, a, a party to celebrate his release in December because it was a small dinner party. There were only eight or ten of us, I think, at the, at the, at the dinner. If there, was a, if there was a party... Then I'd know nothing about that. You were invited to that dinner as a guest of honour. Well, I was there, so there was a dinner. I don't think it was quite as as you might put it, but yeah, okay. I was there for a, I was there at a dinner. Yeah. I'm just trying to work this out because you said you went to break up the relationship, and yet you stayed at that New York mansion several days. I'm wondering how yeah, long. But I was doing a number of other things while I was there. But you were staying at the house of yes. a convicted sex offender. It was a convenient place to stay. There was, I mean, I mean, I've gone through this in my mind so many times. At the end of the day, um, uh, um, with the benefit of all the hindsight that one could have, um, it was definitely the wrong thing to do. Um, but at the time, I felt it was the, it was the honourable and right thing to do. And I, I admit fully that that that, that my judgment was probably coloured by my um, tendency to be too honourable, but that's just the way it is. that by looking at Andrew's career, you know, such as it was, we can learn a lot about what function guys like him serve for governments and oil firms. Now, not every middleman is as highly placed and public as Prince Andrew, but every country with an aristocracy has people like him. I think the term would be fail sons. Does anyone still use that anymore? I don't know, but it would be fail sons. 
And like Andrew, you know, they're usually selected because although they have the heft and the prestige that comes from their social position and their, their background, they are also hopelessly pathetic pieces of shit, you know, respected by exactly zero people. And they are acutely, maddeningly insecure because they're aware of it. And they are willing to keep their mouths shut and do what they're told so that they can feel like they're making moves like real power brokers. That's um, an upside of hiring someone like Andrew. He's kind of like um, Andy Stern in Casino. Or was it Philip Green? He's He didn't know too much and he didn't want to know too much. He wanted to believe he got the job because he was so fucking smart and gifted. Just let him feel like he's a big boy doing big business. Now, Andrew is our version of the dipshit Saudi kids who flow into London every summer to bang around in Ferraris and do coke in gentlemen's clubs and pay off the cops when things go too far in the VIP section of the strip club. Yeah. Andrew's activities as a special representative for trade and international development are suitably murky and little understood, I would say. At a surface level, Right, He was just supposed to go to trade conferences and meet business leaders and dignitaries to open up new opportunities for UK companies. But we won't ever really know what else he did because all the records of what exactly he was fucking doing for the 10 years he held this job between 2001 and 2011, they've been sealed until 2065. How about that? This happened recently. He only stepped down because of you know his eyebrow-raising business dealings and his friendships with dictators and child molesters. Now, don't forget that the Arab Spring had also kicked off as well in the final year of his uh, role. And Andrew's activities, they all started to look a little bit sordid at a time when we were trying to pretend that we supported democracy in the Middle East. You know, it's fine to have these back-channel lines of business and um personal relationships with like the Saudis or, you know, Bahrain or wherever. But Andrew was just, it was, it was too in your face. You know what I mean? It was too high profile, but enough has leaked out anyway that, you know, while I would never, I couldn't outright call him a corrupt fuck because of, of British libel laws. There is nothing to stop me using that term in this sentence. Um, so let's talk it through to get a feel for how the people and the money move around here. So owing to the very strange way, as we've said before, that the British establishment works, you know, where the walls between um, business and intelligence and politics and media become extremely porous, people often function as state security assets, even if on paper, they have nothing to do with either MI6 or Whitehall. And in the case of many of the royal family members, although they're not supposed to have any direct involvement in day-to-day state affairs, giving them jobs like this lends them political clout. You know what I mean? It gives them a kind of extra political influence. So even though Andrew's role as a trade rep ended in 2011, he was still granted what they called uh, full diplomatic support to, and I quote here, strengthen ties with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia owing to, quoting again here, outstanding commitments he wished to fulfill. This is by the Foreign Office. And then between 2011 and 2019, when the Epstein affair broke worldwide and Andrew gave that 
hilarious interview on the BBC, uh, you know, on Newsnight. Um, he held at least 70 meetings, Andrew did, with senior officials from Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, and so on. And the chief items on the agenda at most of these meetings were guns and oil. And his two main aides on these trips were Laura Hutchins and Major General Richard Sykes. Sykes is one of many, many ex-forces guys, high-ranking guys, who now serve as these nebulously defined diplomatic officials connected to the government and the palace. Laura Hutchins, she was a rising star in the Cameron government, and she'd been the head of the Conservative Middle East Council, or CMEC. Now, CMEC itself is a very odd group. Um, initially, it was founded by a Tory MP called Sir Dennis Walters in 1980 to give a platform to pro-Palestinian Tories. That's right. They used to exist. And over the last, like, 40-odd years, it has gradually shifted to the much vaguer and safer objective of helping the Conservative government understand the Middle East. That's that's in its mission statement now. And this, you know, understanding the Middle East, it seems to actually mean finding the best ways to trade guns for oil. Andrew met with uh, Crown Prince Salman of Bahrain on April the 15th, 2011. And this is one of the... Uh, events that really started to lead to calls for him to step back because over the previous two months, the Bahrainian government had killed at least 35 people, you know, um, and these people were killed because they took part in anti-government protests and they were using British-made weapons were the Bahrainian security forces. They were using British-made weapons supplied to them by Saudi Arabia. And there's a neat little feature on the, the Royal UK website, um, the royal.uk website. This is the court circular section. And here you can input dates and search for the name of a royal and a place or person and find out if or when they met. So if you put in Prince Andrew's name and any given piece of shit, you will probably find something. They will probably have met at some point. And you can do this with all the royals, to be fair. So why was Saudi Arabia able to supply Bahrain with British guns? Well, this gets into something we've briefly mentioned before, but never had the time to get exhaustive on, but which we have plenty of room tonight to explore. And that is the Al-Yamama arms deal. So in a nutshell, Al-Yamama is the name of a trade agreement that was set up between the Saudi regime and BAE systems. And this was overseen and guaranteed by the British government. You know, the British government are kind of playing the, the role of the local mafia boss, you know, guaranteeing the contract here. Al-Yamama is the biggest ever export agreement the British government has set up. And in exchange for 600,000 barrels of oil a day, BAE supplied all sorts of cool toys like missiles and ships and armor and fighter jets and so on. Britain and Saudi Arabia, they've always done business like this, but the sheer fucking size of Al-Yamama is pretty mind-blowing. And in fact, nobody really knows just how big this agreement is because the people closest to the contract have been so secretive about it. But what we do know is the idea 
was that it would run in three initial stages over about 20 years with an option to continue the deal if both sides were happy. The deal has continued. Uh, BAE has made around £50 billion off the back of it, and they anticipate they'll make billions more in the decades ahead. And Saudi Arabia has been able to overhaul its military and ensure that the regime may, remains in place without granting any concessions, you know, to like human rights or democracy or receiving any real scrutiny for its clandestine support for outfits like Al Qaeda and ISIS. And it's fair to say that Saudi Arabia was only able to fight the war in Yemen because of the scale of support that it received from the UK government and BAE in terms of equipment and intelligence gathering and personnel training. Uh, you may remember a story from a few years back that went nowhere, which was about how SAS soldiers were injured in a firefight with Houthi rebels. Now, this was a firefight they should not have fucking been in. And shortly after this, the SAS was also implicated in training child soldiers for the Saudi-led coalition. Um, and you can look at this as an outgrowth of that Al-Yamama arms deal. I'm sure it won't come as any particular shock that there have been long-standing allegations of corruption and kickbacks and that British diplomats and BAE officials paid millions to the Saudis to win the Al-Yamama uh, contract. Margaret Thatcher's son, Mark, actually, he was directly implicated by none other than Adnan Khashoggi. Um, and this is because Adnan was either suffering a, a momentary pang of moral clarity, or it's because he was extremely pissed off that he and the French partners that he was with had been initially cut out of this deal. Mark Thatcher's role in Al Yamama is interesting because of how similar it is to the function that Prince Andrew would serve a little further down the line. You can think of them kind of like the Pete Campbells of the international arms and oil trades. You know, they are account men and they are born of incredible privilege and they need a job so they seem like they're real people. You know, they're wine and dine clients, they collect gossip and intelligence, and then they feed it strategically to their handlers or other well-placed insiders in exchange for a percentage. I really hope you've seen Mad Men or you will have no idea why the Pete Campbell analogy works so well here. Now the dirt around Al Yamama is fucking incredible. Um, to, to ensure that the deal stayed in place, BAE set up and maintained a multi-million, some say billion pound slush fund. And this entailed creating what amounts to a global money laundering machine, you know, and this was with the sanction of the Ministry of Defense. And thereafter, again, with the approval of the MOD, they set up a secret account with the Bank of England. And the Saudis would use this to pay for their fighter jets and finance other BAE research and development programs that they were interested in. This is from the London Times. Quote, the account was set up because in the 1980s, Saudi Arabia paid for its arms with oil. It transferred oil production to BP and Shell, and they paid cash into the Bank of England account. The money was then forwarded to BAE to pay for arms. When the price of oil slumped in the early 1990s, the account fell into deficit, embarrassing the Saudis who were forced to make cash top-ups. Since then, the account has been kept in surplus. In distributing the surplus, the Saudis have maintained the payment method agreed under Al Yamama. And that is why I keep saying Al Yamama. I do apologize. This fucking accent of mine sometimes. Um, 
Anyway, that is why BAE has become embroiled. Any investigation into BAE will therefore lead directly back to the MOD and a Bank of England account that the government claims does not exist. Here we go again with the, the weird voodoo, the weird morphing effect on time and space that all this capital has, you know. Um, so BAE, they moved, yeah, billions through offshore accounts and shell companies to various agents, what are called agents. And these agents were responsible for ensuring that this money went to the right people in the form of kickbacks and payoffs. Um, remember as well, they weren't just bribing Saudis. They were also paying off anyone who could help them acquire new business anywhere in the world. The entire network was overseen by a team inside BAE called HQ Marketing Services. And the team leader, so to speak, the team leader, was a fellow called Hugh Dickinson, who was also the main liaison between BAE and MI6. And eventually the system, it got so big that BAE had to spin off the Saudi section and create another front company called Poseidon Trading Investments in 1999, just to handle the cash flow for that part of it. Now, Turkey bin Nasser al Saud, he was allegedly paid as much as 50 million pounds, and his father in law, Sultan bin Abdulaziz, the, the crown prince, he was accused by an anonymous official at the UK's serious fraud office as having a corrupt interest in all Al Yamama contracts. And the crown prince's son is, of course, Banda bin Sultan. Banda Bush. And, you know, additional tens of millions from the BAE-Saudi deal, sanctioned by the UK government, um, they are supposed to have been diverted through Riggs Bank to finance off-the-book CIA operations in Afghanistan, Africa, and the Balkans. Riggs Bank was also used by Omar al-Bayoumi, who was the alleged spook who supported two of the 9-11 hijackers, um, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midah, yeah, Khalid Almada, that was the guy. And after he set up bank accounts at Riggs Bank for these two, his wife began to receive thousands of dollars in monthly stipends from Bandar bin Sultan's wife. BAE simply refused to cooperate with the investigations undertaken by the UK's National Audit Office and the Serious Fraud Office. And in fact, you can read this as pure flex because... BAE had already taken precautionary measures in 1997 when they moved all their filing cabinets and computer hard drives uh, containing the names of everyone involved in the bribery network and, you know, the detailed financial accounts. They loaded all that shit up in Farnborough, which is where they were based in England, onto a couple of lorries and they drove it all the way to Geneva, drove it all the way to Switzerland. So therefore, all the main evidence was outside UK jurisdiction. Now, given this and their close relationship to the UK government and the secret state, they had nothing to fear from investigators and they still told them to fuck off anyway, just because they could. The National Audit Office final report, that wasn't even released, which has never happened before or since. And to get a feel for how farcical this all became, consider Sir Kevin Tebbett who was a permanent secretary at the Ministry of Defence, and how he tipped off the BAE chairman, Sir Richard Evans, about the impending serious fraud office investigation in the early 2000s. Tebbit was BAE's man at the MOD, and it appears to have been his job to make the Al-Yamama scandal go away. 
to the point, in fact, of directly warning SFO investigators to shut the investigation down because, as he put it, we may set damaging hairs running. Now, think about those links that I just told you about, Riggs Bank, Bandar Bush, damaging hairs running. Consider that. Now, Tebbit has the resume of a typical spook, you know, albeit a particularly haunting one. Um, He's a, a privately educated old boy. He moved straight to the Ministry of Defense in the late 60s. And thereafter, he was part of Britain's delegation to NATO in Brussels between 1979 and 1983, which, you know, were the fun years. And this was before being posted to the Foreign Office's uh, East European Department in the late 80s and then serving a spell at the British Embassy in Turkey. Uh-huh. And eventually he became the director of GCHQ. So when you see British officials being posted to different embassies and working for the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defense, your antenna should begin to perk because they're almost invariably spooks. And in fact, if you meet any British person who was privately educated, get fucking twitching, pal. Particularly when, like Sir Richard Evans They were educated at a fucking private school for the children of wealthy Freemasons called the Royal Masonic School for Boys. Anyway, in 2006, The Guardian reported, quote, A brutal moment came last Tuesday for the 15-strong team from the Serious Fraud Office, led by Assistant Director Helen Garlick. The team's leaders were ordered down to Lord Goldsmith's offices in Buckingham Gate with their boxes of files. These contained the fruit of more than two years digging into allegations that huge Saudi bribes had been paid by arms group BAE Systems to get weapons deals. In Switzerland, in the Federal Prosecutor's Office in Berne, Another box of files was also sitting, waiting to be collected. It was the hottest potato of all. The Swiss dossier contained printouts of BAE's recent offshore banking transactions with key Saudi middlemen. The normally highly secret bank records had recently been secured by the authorities at the British investigator's request. The SFO believed the banking files could unlock the answer to three questions. Were members of the Saudi royal family receiving secret British payoffs? Were offences committed under UK law? And had BAE lied to the Department of Trade and Industry to get insurance cover when the company recently claimed it had cleaned up its act and got rid of its confidential Saudi agents? The Prime Minister has already said that he did not want ill feeling with the Saudi regime. Des Brown, the Defence Secretary, chimed in with the same message. A well-orchestrated PR campaign involving BAE's own lobbyists and veteran fixers like Tim Bell and the BAE-dominated Defence Export Services Organisation at the MOD was already setting up a chorus that the latest Saudi arms contract for 72 Typhoon aircraft was in danger, threatening up to 100,000 jobs. A tried-and-true method of deflecting um, accountability and warding off investigations into its very shady business practices um, that BAE does is to do this, is to threaten that if you try and hold them accountable for anything, you are going to make hundreds of thousands of people unemployed. They do it all the fucking time. But yeah, anyway, let that little passage just percolate in the old noodle. And then when you hear about that type of thing, and you realize that pulling on a thread like the BAE slush fund can lead you to, you know, the CIA, off the books operations, 
Saudi racketeering and Saudis with connections to 9-11, indirect connections, but connections nevertheless. Is it really all that big a mystery why the British government, especially Tony Blair's government back then, in the middle of the Iraq war, killed the investigation? And is it now a little bit more understandable why Andrew's records from his time as a special trade, whatever the fuck, have been sealed for the next 40 years? Would it surprise anyone if they were sealed for another 40 when we get to 2065? Now, I'm not saying he had anything to do with 9-11, of course. Although, but no, I'm not. Um, I am saying that moving in this world of arms and oil brings you into proximity with some incredibly fucked up people and networks. And if you are already lacking in moral fiber, which I'm not saying Andrew is, but I am saying that, then you aren't likely to feel obliged to ask too many questions about their business dealings. You know, these Saudis that you are being hosted by in lavish five-star hotels and, you know, restaurants and whatnot, you're not going to feel obliged to ask any questions about their business dealings or how they manage their clients or whatever. So we have a trade deal in place where BAE Systems sends military hardware to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia sends us oil. Saudi Arabia then shares some of its technology made by the British with allied regimes in the area most of whom the British have some kind of colonial history with. And so where the weapons and oil firms go, the British advisors and technicians and intelligence officers and account men, like Andrew, follow. So the Al-Yamama deal was crooked from the beginning, and at every level there are intermediaries and fixers getting a cut and exerting influence to keep as much of this as possible out of the news, and to keep everybody paid. There are offshore slush funds for bribes and kickbacks and black operations. There are dozens of front companies facilitating the the flow of guns and oil between Britain and the Middle East. And then there are additional levels of powerful people with shares and investments tied up in all of this, not the least among them, the British MPs who virtually banned the relevant agencies from looking into all of this. How many British MPs are we talking about? Well, We only have a very vague idea because when a company is listed on the stock exchange, instead of being registered on the publicly available company's house, names of shareholders and investors, they're stored instead on a secret database that's located in a place called Lansing, which is a little village in Sussex. And if you want a list of BAE shareholders, that'll cost you £95. And And you have to pay £95 for each subsequent request. And if you intend to share this list with anyone else, you have to give the government those people's names and addresses. And then they have to supply the names and addresses of anyone they might share it with. So if you're a journalist or something, you know, technically you need to give the names and addresses of every single person who could potentially read your article. Although The Guardian did manage to publish a partial list of the BAE shareholders, uh, too much opprobrium, and it makes for instructive reading. Now, complicating this is that the threshold for when um, an MP has to declare a financial interest in a company is very high. (laughs) And this is quite funny, but... um, The English have made it so that threshold is higher for English politicians than it is for Scottish ones, which, yeah, that's quite funny. And yeah, many of these MPs, they have relatives and friends just hold the shares for them instead. 
you know, so they don't have to declare them at that point. Theresa May and her husband, we know that they own a shitload of shares in BAE and BP through her husband's firm, Capital Group. And this was while she was the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister. And we were fueling the conflicts in Libya and Syria and Yemen, where BAE obviously made a fortune. And then a bunch of other Tories also own shares in um, BAE and oil and gas firms. And you might say that this is breathtakingly fucking corrupt. And I would say only if you are applying a moral framework to the situation. Otherwise, the law is quite clear when it says that this is just English, right? And of course, there are lots of investment funds managing pensions and the like that also tie their money up in these firms. So BAE spokespeople are actually delivering some of those old-fashioned grim truths when they refer to themselves as one of the biggest engines for wealth creation in the UK. So, you know, basically, if everybody is implicated by this, then nobody is guilty. That's the logic. And to ensure that, you know, the relevant parties are happy and companies like BAE or BP or whoever can keep doing business with governments like the one in Saudi Arabia, you need ace account men or in Andrew's case, you just need a guy with the right lineage. And the job of an account man is to manage various relationships at the very top level after these deals get signed. This means doing whatever you need to do to keep the guns and the oil and the money flowing. Um, we are going to get into the specifics of how they do that and what keeps some clients happy in the next episode. But the following should offer us some insight into why Andrew was possibly seen as a particularly good candidate for this relationship with Saudi Arabia. Now, to most normal people, Andrew is a blundering dipshit and he... Uh, is a perpetual source of national embarrassment and scandal, but to a certain kind of gulf or Whitehall freak, stories like this make him an ideal envoy. This is from Declassified 2021. Andrew, the Duke of York, rushed to Jeddah in June 2012 to pay tribute to Crown Prince Naif, who had passed away months after overseeing a brutal crackdown on Arab Spring protesters. Among those arrested for organizing demonstrations was 17-year-old Ali al-Nimir, who would be sentenced to death by beheading and crucifixion. Now a diplomatic telegram about Andrew's visit has been obtained by Declassified through a Freedom of Information request to the Foreign Office, written by Britain's then Ambassador John Jenkins, and heavily redacted to protect the UK's relationship with the Saudis. It says, quote within a quote, our senior presence is well received by all at the morning ceremony. Andrew's visit occurred over a year after the scandal broke about his relationship with convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein in early 2011. So yeah, we never really got answers about what he did specifically, because as noted, the few times his position... And yeah, we never really got answers about what he did specifically in this role because the few times his position was questioned by our elected representatives, they were shut down. This is from The Independent, 2011. Last week, Labour's justice spokesman, Chris Bryant, said Prince Andrew was a very close friend of Saif Gaddafi, son of the Libyan dictator. Bryant also linked him to convicted Libyan gun smuggler Karuk Tartouni, and asked David Cameron whether it was time the Duke's services were dispensed with. 
Bryant's question brought a rapid warning from the speaker, John Burko, who said that MPs' references to the royal family should be very rare, very sparing, and very respectful. We have to be careful in our handling of these matters. Hitherto, it has been confined to criticism of the extravagant style in which he and his entourage travel. The latest figures show he spent £500,000 on hotels and flights in the year to April 2010. Not for nothing is he known as Air Miles Andy. Outside Parliament, the Duke has repeatedly provoked controversy. Sir Ivor Roberts, a distinguished British diplomat, has remarked that Prince Andrew is rude to foreign dignitaries, while another senior diplomat described him as boorish. His behaviour abroad was noted by, and I cannot fucking pronounce this name whatsoever, just giving you a heads up. His behaviour abroad was noted by Tatiana Gofolia. Gofella. Don't know. The US ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, whose report from the country stated that the Duke called the serious fraud office idiots for investigating bribery claims around the Al Yamama arms deal uh, that was revealed by WikiLeaks. And yeah, the full text of that cable is here. Quote The brunch had already lasted almost twice its allotted time, but the prince looked like he was just getting started. Having exhausted the topic of Kyrgyzstan, he turned to the general issue of promoting British economic interests abroad. He railed at British anti-corruption investigators who had the idiocy of almost scuttling the Al Yamama deal with Saudi Arabia. Note, the Duke was referencing an investigation subsequently closed into alleged kickbacks a senior Saudi royal had received in exchange for the multi-year lucrative BAE systems contract to provide equipment and training to Saudi security forces. End note. His mother's subjects seated around the table roared their approval. He then went on to these fucking journalists, especially from the National Guardian. I think he means the Guardian. Uh, who poke their noses everywhere and presumably make it harder for British businessmen to do business. The crowd practically clapped. He then capped this off with a zinger, castigating our stupid British and American governments, which plan at best for 10 years, whereas people in this part of the world plan for centuries. There were calls of hear, hear in the private brunch hall. Unfortunately for the assembled British subjects, their cherished prince was now late to the prime ministers. He regretfully tore himself away from them and they from him. On the way out, one of them confided to the ambassador, what a wonderful representative for the British people. We could not be prouder of our royal family. I fucking hate these people so much.
Andrew was um, close to the ex-Kazakhstan president come dictator um, Nursultan Nazarbayev and his family and of course Shell, BP and BAE have many varied interests in the region. I uh, think the, the Caspian Pipeline Consortium, which handles, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm saying this like I don't have it written down in front of me, but handles about 1.6 million barrels of Kazakh oil a day. And as far as uh, BAE goes, it has a 49% stake in Air Astana, which is a joint airline venture between it and Kazakhstan's sovereign wealth fund. And our friend Sir Richard Evans, who oversaw this deal, um, when he was at BAE, he then went on to become the chairman of Samruk, which is Kazakhstan's state holding company that manages various infrastructure projects like the railways, the postal service, and of course, oil and gas companies. Now, Nazarbayev and his family were supposed to have stolen millions from Samruk. And Evans made the move there the year after the news about the SFO investigation into Al-Yamama. Bro. Uh, he met Nazarbayev in London over three days in November of 2006. And this was just before a trial began in January of 2007 that saw an oil broker called James Giffen accused of diverting $85 million on behalf of Mobile Oil to offshore accounts held by Nazarbayev and his family in exchange for access to oil and gas. Now, what was Giffen's story? He said that the CIA approached him directly and ordered him to make the payments. The case, naturally, ultimately went nowhere. Uh, this is from Radio Free Europe. After seven years of legal wrangling, trial postponements, and efforts by Kazakh President Nusultan Nazarbayev to control its political implications, the multi-million dollar Kazakh gate bribery scandal is over. On August 6th, a smiling James Giffen left a New York City courtroom after negotiating a plea deal with US prosecutors in which he admitted guilt for a misdemeanor tax violation and a single bribery count against his company. What eventually settled the case in Giffen's favor, observers say, has little to do with any Kazakh pressure. According to Giffen's lawyers, even if the charges against him were true, he could not be found guilty because Giffen claimed to have worked in concert with the Central Intelligence Agency, which allegedly used him to leverage influence in Kazakhstan. In briefings with the agency, his lawyers argued that officials implicitly condoned the actions he undertook as needed to maintain closeness with Nazarbayev. Requests by the defense to introduce classified documents from the CIA and other government bodies as evidence in the case, which they said would exonerate Giffen, have been repeatedly refused by lawyers representing the government. That has resulted in years of delays. <clears throat> so, Timur uh, Kulbayev, who's no Sultan's son-in-law, he chaired a company called Kaz Munai Gas that was managed by Samruk, and he was so close to Prince Andrew that Andrew used his royal office to get Timur a mansion owned by the Crown Estate uh, close to Kensington Palace. And Timur also paid Andrew £15 million through offshore companies. And Andrew was so comfortable around the family that he acted as a broker between them and a consortium of Addis Capital from Switzerland and EYDAP, which is Greece's biggest water company. 
they wanted to bid for infrastructure contracts and the deal was supposed to be potentially worth upwards of 885 million. But then the Kazakh police murdered 12 oil workers who were leading a strike and the consortium pulled out because they were scared of the negative publicity. Andrew would have pocketed a 1% commission and because the deal fell apart, he was said to have been furious. Again, not trying to single Andrew out here just because I don't like him, because that would be mean, and his mother's dead. We're using him as an example of the middleman, you know, um, the middleman, the fixer, the good time boy, you know, and all of his trips and expenses were fully covered by UK taxpayers. So in a sense, he fucking owes me money. But again, his mother is dead, so it looks like I'm I'm shit out of luck. And don't forget, there are, and don't forget, there are, thousands more fixers just like him um, who assist in moving money around the world, influence peddling, and so on. Here is an early day motion that was tabled in Parliament on November 2nd, 2012, a year after he was supposed to have left his trade envoy role. Quote, that this house is surprised by the statement made by a spokesman for Prince Andrew that he continues to play a role at the request of the government in helping trade relations between the UK and Azerbaijan, notes that the prince had visited the loathsome, anti-democratic, election-rigging, oppressive President Aliyev, could have been talking about the UK government there, but never mind, President Aliyev, eight times in the past five years, recalls that the prince visited Azerbaijan in 2009 at a total cost to the taxpayer of £60,000, agrees with the comment by UK Director of Human Rights Watch, that the prince is making the UK look stupid by appearing to endorse unethical business practices that damage the UK's standing in international trade, and believes that the best service Prince Andrew could provide to the nation is a period of inactivity in respect of relations with Azerbaijan. Now, Azerbaijan was something of a special project for Prince Andrew, and he was close to President Ilham Aliyev. Each time he went there, he was flown in on a private jet, he was given the five-star treatment, and he was even referred to as the dear guest in state media. Uh, he's even gone so far as to directly lobby British MPs on behalf of Azerbaijan and the Aliyevs, which neatly blows a hole, really, in the laughable idea that the royal family never interfered in politics. Um, and the UK Foreign Office has consistently refused to offer any information about why he was visiting the country so much, even after he lost this trade envoy position. And the palace has done likewise. But taking a closer look at his ties to Azerbaijan offers quite a lot of insight into the way that someone like Andrew comes to occupy several different positions at once as they travel the world, you know, opening up new markets for states and corporations. This type of operative. And I do know that using the term operative seems a bit grandiose for a dipshit like Andrew, but you know, it's the best term we've got. So yeah, this type of operative is at once a business consultant, a strange sort of publicist and intelligence asset for both companies and governments on either side of the deal, you know, Azerbaijan as well as the British. He is a lobbyist, as we've seen. He is a networker and he is an influencer. The prestige of his office, of his royal status and all that. Now, this is from the Buckingham Palace press team. Quote, 
Middle East potentates like meeting princes. Andrew comes in as the son of the queen and that opens doors. He can raise problems with a crown prince and we later discover that the difficulties have been overcome and the contract can be signed. They're right there saying it. He helps nudge open the door for the wolves. And yeah, they they connect Andrew, guys like him, they connect different network nodes located all over the place and they never fail to take a cut in the process. And the contacts they acquire and the way that they knit together oil capos in the Gulf with investment bankers in the city and arms dealers close to MI6 and the Ministry of Defense goes some way to explaining why the MOD continued financing his trips to Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and Qatar and beyond until that car crash Newsnight interview made it untenable. And in fact, I think I may have mentioned this before, but I might as well mention it again because this is fucking hilarious, right? After that interview, when the entire country was just laughing at him and his reputation of being, what, what, residual goodwill there was towards him, which even at that point, before we knew about Jeffrey Epstein and everything, nobody really liked him. But even at that point, all the residual goodwill was gone. I distinctly remember reading in the Telegraph and the Financial Times that sources inside MI6 um, believed that, told those journalists, you know, we think it's best if he steps back now, right? And if you know anything about um, the Telegraph and the Financial Times, you'll know that those two are conduits for the British secret state. And the Telegraph is Andrew's favorite newspaper. So what they were effectively saying is, if you don't back the fuck off and disappear and shut the fuck up for a very long time, there may be a car crash in a tunnel in your future. You know, that's what I, that's how I read that anyway very coded warning to Andrew because they also said as well that they were worried that um, Putin had blackmail material on Andrew, that Jeffrey Epstein may have sold him on the the black market or something, Um, which is really just a way of, I think personally, pure speculative, but I think given what I know, this is reasonable. You know, what I know about how they talk and how they code threats. I think what MI6 is saying here is uh, we have material on you and we are not going to hesitate to release it if you don't stop drawing so much attention, not to not just to yourself, but also to the royal family, other members of the royal family who are still at the moment in good standing with the public and the spider's web of dark finance, money, arms and oil deals that all sort of spins off from that. Um, So yeah, I mean, as of the recording of this show though, he is already slowly easing back into palace duties and there has been some talk of him assuming a kind of informal diplomatic role as our rep to uh, Bahrain. And I knew that this was coming when during the Queen's funeral last year, a guy who was watching the royal procession, the funeral procession, He, I think he shouted like pedophile at Andrew and a bunch of people standing near this guy in the crowd turned around and beat the shit out of him. And that guy ended up getting arrested, not the people who beat him up. 
And that was when I realized that like, um, we have done our classic world amnesia trick and people are beginning to warm up to the idea of having this fucking weird creep, um, back in public life. This is genuinely, there's just something about Prince Andrew that, that activates my, my rage. Anyway, I do apologize. I went completely off there. So let's get back to this idea of network nodes. One of these nodes that Andrew connected to a broader financial circuit, if you will, was a UK businessman called David Spotty Rowland. Spotty Rowland, everybody. He's supposed to be nearing a billion in wealth, and he has long-standing ties to the Conservative Party, and he serves as a financial advisor to Prince Andrew. And naturally enough, he has numerous shares in companies registered in the British Virgin Islands. He's so close to Andrew, his spotty Roland, that when he was still living in Guernsey, Andrew flew over to unveil a bronze statue of Roland that Roland had cast of himself, at a party that Roland had thrown in his own honor. And just like Epstein, he also had to bail out Andrew and Fergie from time to time. And when the pressure began to mount on Andrew in 2011, given his unsavory links to Jeff and assorted other tyrants, Roland came up with a real whiz of an idea, a real pisser of an idea. He proposed submerging Andrew's tangled financial affairs so they wouldn't end up splashed all over the papers quite as much. And in exchange, he asked Andrew if he could tap into his extensive network of contacts all over Europe and the Middle East to open the door for Roland's investment bank, which is the banker Haviland. And after this, Roland created Inverness Asset Management and this is headquartered, of course, in the British Virgin Islands. And he gave Andrew a 40% stake of the business, share of the business. Haviland, uh, via Inverness Asset Management, then started to do business with people Prince Andrew put them in touch with, like the Aliyevs and the other oligarchs in Azerbaijan. This is from Emerging Europe 2021. Some of Havilland's clients were so toxic that in 2018, even Luxembourg's regulator was alarmed and a criminal investigation was launched. It is still ongoing. The probe is looking at the bank's relationship with the political elite of Azerbaijan, among other things. According to Bloomberg Businessweek, Roland accompanied Andrew on a trip to Azerbaijan in 2008 and afterwards emailed a relative of Aliyev's wife who ran the country's largest company, Pasha Holden. In 2009, Pasha reportedly routed 5 million US dollars to an investment fund controlled by the Rolands that had an account at Haviland. In 2014, Haviland bought a Bahamas-based bank where Aliyev's daughters had accounts. They subsequently used one of the accounts to lend money to two companies whose main role seemed to be making loans to the family of Mikhail Gutseriev, the largest shareholder of Rusneft, a Russian oil company, also with interests in Azerbaijan. And I guess a natural enough question now is, why was Azerbaijan so close to Andrew's heart? You know, why was this his special project? Well, I can't be 100%, but I think that it was made his special project by other people. 
because Azerbaijan is a special project of NATO, the CIA, and, you know, more importantly for us, MI6 and a number of British oil and arms companies, they put a lot of work into cracking that place wide open. And it was the job of people like Andrew to, you know, as we said, manage those crucial relationships that keep the oil and the money flowing. So in discussing Andrew's time as a trade envoy, I think now we have a good idea of how guys like him function in this great blasted machine, right? And what their real job is, uh, you know, when you strip away the PR bullshit. And now I think it's time to go a level above that and look at how these markets are often opened up in the first place. This means we no longer have to talk about Prince Andrew, and it means that we can expand our discussion. We can now start talking about the new great game. That's what Spignu Brzezinski called it in what he also called the Eurasian Balkans. Next time out, we're going to look at MI6, big oil, coups, heroin, Turkish gladio, the revolving door between state security and the fossil fuel industry, and the rise of the private intelligence operatives. But that will be in the next part, which will 100% be up uh, by the end of this week, certainly no later than the start of the weekend. But until then, and as ever, mark the exits, check the sight lines, and don't get captured. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you.